Hello, and welcome to the Superhero by Design podcast, a show where we interview real-life superheroes. My name is Ace, and I'll be your host. I've had some pretty incredible people on the show before, but nobody comes even close to how badass this man is. He has been all over the world working on secret missions that you would only get a glimpse of watching a show like Jack Ryan. He is a walking weapon, but at the same time, he is a man with a heart of gold. There is just so much value that this man adds that we're going to probably have to break this episode into two parts. It is a complete honor to have this man on the show. Let's give it up for the most dangerous man in the room, Harley Tuhan Elmore. <laughs> Tuhan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. That's, uh, that's quite an intro right there. <laughs> hey, I am so pumped and excited. I can't even express how excited to the audience I am to have you on the show today. We have had, I have had the immense honor and privilege to have gotten to know you, become a part of your tribe over this last year, year and a half. And just the stories from your struggles as a child to how you got out of your childhood situation to what you do throughout your career and specifically even more so today is just absolutely incredible. I know the audience is going to go on an incredible ride. So thank you once again for coming on the show. Oh, uh, well, thanks for having me. I, you know, um, like most people, I'm just trying to get the job done, you know, get the head down, you know, nose the grindstone. And every once in a while, when you look up and you notice, hey, this is working. <laughs> this is pretty good. Uh, and other people kind of appreciate your efforts. Well, that's always nice, right? <laughs> I, I, I also love how humble you are, because for those of you listening, this guy is a weapon. He is a lethal weapon. He is a badass. But he also is an amazing husband, amazing father, and amazing steward of his community. So. For those of you who don't know, Tuhan and his wife run Warrior's Way Martial Arts Academy, which is a martial arts school in Wichita Falls, Texas. Harley Tuhan is also one of the founders of Operation Rescue Children, which is a nonprofit organization that goes into the darkest places of the world and helps free people from slavery. He is also the owner and creator of Headhunter Blades, which are the most badass blades on the market. And we are going to get into that. I am so excited to just talk about knives with you. But you could check out those products at headhunterblades.com. On top of everything he does, he also runs a training event series called Principled Savage. And we're going to get more into that because I was a part of that completely changed my life. And it is going to be an amazing time talking to you about all of these things plus more. So Tuhan, you better be ready because I'm coming in hot. All right. <laughs> Bring it. First question. All right. How you doing, man? <laughs> I'm good. I just started the, this is day one of the 100 Day Challenge uh, with, uh, you know, Dr. Keith Wagner's 100 Day Challenge. So, uh, you know, I just finished my power hour. I'm good to go, man. That's right. And for yeah. everybody listening, I do talk about the 100 Day Challenge quite a bit. It is as of this recording date, February 6th, 2023. And yeah, the 100 day challenge has officially started. I added a few things in the morning. I'm getting up even earlier now and I feel absolutely incredible. Gone to the gym, got my cold shower in, made my bed, all the stuff I talk about. Um, so I am locked and loaded and ready to get at it with you here. So let's, I always love to start from the beginning. Because sure. I feel like to know somebody fully who they are now, you got you to gotta know their history. Like, I think it, it would be doing anybody a disservice if we didn't know at least a little bit about where somebody came from. And you and I have talked about that from time to time. And your story is absolutely incredible. So I'm just going to let you start wherever you want to start with, with where you were born, raised, how you grew up, and just take it from there. Sure. I mean, um, you know, it's one of those things where you hate to talk negatively about anybody, you know, and, um, you know, it might be different if, if you were still had a bad relationship with family members and things like that. And the reality is, is that I don't, right. I don't have a bad family. I don't have relation, bad relationships with family. And, um, so, 
you know, I don't talk about it too much because you don't want to hurt people's feelings. Right. Right. Um, and as I, as I grew up, I realized that, uh, you know, a lot of things that I was perceiving as a child, uh, you know, uh, that wasn't necessarily true. Everybody's doing their best, but I grew up in a, uh, in a rural community in, in Arkansas. Uh, the town is called Mansfield, Arkansas, population of 1000. Go Tigers. And, um, um, you know, uh, I grew up on a farm. My grandfather uh, and grandmother had built a farm uh, earlier in their life. And by the time I was arrived on this farm, uh, you know, it was no longer really a working farm. Uh, it had at one time been the family um, business, right? So they had uh, raised strawberries and sold strawberries. And so when I, when I got there, there were barn hay barns and horse stalls. And there was the old tool shed that still had dynamite in it oh, from wow. blowing up, blowing up stumps and all that stuff. So, um, my grandparents, uh, lived on the farm and then we lived maybe a hundred yards away. Um, my uh, grandfather gave my dad an acre of land. It was the worst acre in, in the whole farm. It is literally the place where people had been burning their trash for generation. And uh, it was covered in briars and rocks and all that stuff. And so my dad cleared off that. And I remember being part of that, clearing off those rocks. And I remember playing there before it was, you know, a house. And so um, I grew up right there with, uh, with my, my Depression-era grandparents. Um, which, you know, they were massively influential in my, in my childhood. Um, and when mom and dad were gone, you know, they were the ones that, that really helped me with a lot of things. And they had 10 kids, you know, seven boys and three girls, which is the per perfect ratio to have a farm. Um, so that was pretty good. The early childhood days were great. You know, Fourth um, of July weekend, you know, all 10 kids showing up with all their kids and siblings and all that stuff. And, uh, big families, homemade ice cream and apple pie, fireworks, fireworks wars, you know, shooting Roman candles at each other and bottle rockets at each other, that kind of silly stuff that you do. And, um, but, you know, then this time went on, uh, my mom and dad's uh, marriage um, really started to fall apart. And uh, my father had a, a problem with alcohol. And uh, I, I believe, it, you know, my mom probably had some issues with some some things. And so, um, you know, that was kind of, they started to fall apart. And so life got pretty rough and I can kind of say, well, it happened around third grade because I remember being in third grade, uh, being in the, and sent to the hall or the principal's office every day in school, every day. Um, and I deserved it. <laughs> I remember what I was doing. I deserved every bit of it. Um, but you know, uh, violence and, and, uh, verbal abuse and you know, that sort of thing were just part of, part of everyday life in our house at that point. And it remained that way for quite a while. Um, you know, we moved away. We tried to do some things. My parents tried to move some things and I can try and piece some things together now. Like, Oh, where was mom at this time? Uh, Oh yeah. I don't remember her being there, you know, or I remember, you know, trying to wake, my uncle, uh, my aunt up off the couch and she wouldn't wake up. She's passed out on some drugs or something, you know? Um, so, and, and of course I don't want to beat a dead horse. There's a ton of people who grew up much worse, much worse. Um, you know, but, um, it did get me, uh, started in a path that was very challenging and, uh, that drove my brother and I, I drove our relationship apart. We started treating each other like our parents were treating each other or before we'd been very tight. And, um, so now, you know, it's all violence and screaming and yelling and all that stuff. So, uh, by fourth grade, I was in school in a different school. I was getting beat up every day by bullies or I was beating people up every day. Um, I remember one time I got in a fight with us in school and the guy head butted me and split my lip open so bad that I still have a scar from it. Uh, I went home, we lived in a trailer park and we had a, 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 a Doberman pincher. Uh, named Checkers, who had been attack trained. And I went home and got that Doberman Pinscher and went, walked through the neighborhood, through the trailer park, looking for that kid. I was going to stick this Doberman Pinscher on this kid in fourth grade. So uh, I just had no no filters whatsoever when it came to that. Um, I just thought that's the way the world worked. Um, so that just continued until my mom, you know, had to leave my dad, couldn't put up with it anymore. Uh, she went her own way and disappeared for quite a while. 
Um, you know, she had to put her life together, put herself together. She eventually did. Um, and so I stayed with my father for a little while. Um, until I was about 16. Um, he had a girlfriend in a different town, came home one day and said, uh, we're moving. And, uh, I had, you know, friends and at least two. And, um, you know, I was, I was doing martial arts at that time and I didn't want to leave my school. And, uh, I said, well, I don't want to move. He said, well, that's good. You're not moving. There's no room for you. So, uh, my, my dad and my brother moved to a different town. Um, and, uh, uh left me there in the house that he had built. Well, by then my grandparents had long gone and had some renters, I think at the, in that house at the time. And, um, my dad left, left a huge electric bill. So they shut off the electricity. Uh, you know, I'm a kid. I don't have a job. I'm not really, I, you know, I don't even know how to cook or, I mean, I was, I was a kid. I was a child. Right. And, um, not everybody was, is a child at 16, but, um, but I still was, <laughs> I mean, in that sense, you know, right. um, so anyway, I ended up living in a house there in the woods of Arkansas with no electricity and no running water. And, uh, no heat source, no refrigeration, no way to cook. Um, so, but there was a well cause it was an old farm. So I went down and drew water from the well every day and had water to drink. And, um, I had a wood burning stove cause we lived in the country. Everybody had a wood burning stove. And so I just, uh, you know, got wood and, um, kept myself warm in the winter. I ended up sleeping in that one room as you do when you have a wood burning stove, it's the only heats one room. Um, I would wash my clothes in the sink and then hang them up on a, on a clothesline in there. So they would dry still going to school, you know, still trying to graduate and make some kind of grades. I had, I'd realized at this point that some school was something right. Like, mm, this is kind of important. Uh, up until that point, no one had ever really, I didn't have any mentors. Right. So mm -hmm. that's the, uh, you know, I think when I think back about it, it's, it's, uh, not so much, I mean, obviously the violence and, and, you know, um, somebody, constantly verbally berating you when they're not, even if they're not physically berating you, um, that's, that's bad. But, but having, not having someone like mentor you and, and the ways of the world, um, that really does set you back. Right. So when you don't understand, you know, checking accounts and, you know, the idea of education and, and, you know, that sort of stuff. My, my father was a farmhand and a fence builder, you know, just an old, you know, country guy who worked out there in the country and lived by himself and, and until he died in that house. I mean, his job, his idea was just get a job and work your ass off and you'll make some money. You'll be able to pay your bills. And, and, uh, that's about it, you know? So, but I believe that there was more to the world, you know, um, I had read enough. Uh, I had, you know, escaped a lot of that through reading, um, and, you know, when I read books about martial artists and trained all over the world, you know, these legendary figures in the martial arts um, or even just reading Tarzan, you know, and realizing there's a different place in the world that's completely different than this. People think differently than this. They act differently than this uh, was was a good way, good platform for me to realize what else could be out there. So anyway, that happened about 16. Uh, I lived in that house until I graduated from high school. Um, which wasn't that long. I graduated when I was 17. I, uh, I was, had a job on the weekends working in a local movie theater. Um, I was, a, a, attending martial arts class. Uh, it was a town about 30 miles from my town. And I had, uh, bought a motorcycle from my, my friend, my, uh, one of my best friends there. He was also my pastor, uh, Mitch Burks. And, um, he had sold me his motorcycle and I was making payments on it. Um, during the summer I worked, I drove 37 miles in the morning, uh, every morning to be, uh, to work on the back of a trash truck. Um, you know, back when you had guys who rode on the back of trash trucks. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. So I would ride on the back of that trash truck, jump off, grab the trash, throw it in the back. And, and I had to be at work at 4am to get on that truck. You know, they work early. So that's kind of how I paid off my motorcycles working on the back of a trash truck. Um, again, working movie theaters by the time I was a senior in high school, I was managing, uh, a, uh, a drive-in movie theater of that same city, uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas. It's about 37 miles from where I was living. Um, did that sort of thing, you know, uh, 
and 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 finally after I graduated realized well that's where the jobs are is in Fort Smith you know so moved up there um you know I was I was training martial arts for a couple of years at that point uh with uh Monty Ashley showed I Monty Ashley and um you know he was a grown man with a degree it was a um he was the counselor at our high school and um He's, he was also my martial, became my martial arts instructor. Um, and you know, here was a grown man who was still going to school, still working on his doctorate, still doing these things. And, you know, had a wife and kids and was teaching martial arts, but still trying to improve himself. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, haven't you got enough education? But, you know, he was a good example for me and it kept me out of a lot of trouble. When your training, martial arts training partner is a pastor, a Nazarene pastor, and your martial arts instructor is your high school counselor they kind of keep you in the straight and narrow, right? You, you can't get too far. So uh, they helped me work out of the violence that I was in. And that took a long time, uh, probably not until the 90s that I that I actually worked through that, but uh, the anger and stuff. Um, but um, yeah, that was the beginning. That was the beginning. Those martial arts classes gave me people to fight, gave me grown men to take out my anger and hatred of my situation. and. Uh, and they put me in my place on a regular basis. And uh, so, yeah, I was 16 years old, knocking out grown men and getting knocked out by grown men. And, uh, you know, uh, that's 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 good stuff for a young man who's really, really free. Yeah, you know? that, that's incredible. Like you had talked about not having a proper mentor. However, when you're born into any situation, that's all you know. And your mentorship at that point is just what you experience. And right. so, but at the same time, you were, like you talked about reading, you were getting exposed to other people that were living a different sort of life other than what you had experienced. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like people that had, you know, on the surface, what looked like more stable families, income, education, things like that. Whether you knew it at that point or not, it was like, well, these guys, what are these people doing as opposed to traditionally what I've been exposed to, how, what those people are doing. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, my uncle Gerald, uh, was in, in my opinion, as a, as a child was the most successful guy I knew in, in that world. And, because uh, he was rich. Mm-hmm. I knew he was rich because he lived in a brick house. <laughs> His house was brick, you know, so uh, that's a, that's a sign of wealth, right? Right. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, your, your compass gets a little skewed, you know, when you don't have the right, you know, uh, input. What's incredible too, is you, you're talking about martial arts and we'll get into that. I know that's, that's such a cornerstone of, of your life. Yeah, but it reminds I've never been in the services myself. I've never served in the military, but from stories I've heard of people that have come from similar, maybe somewhat better, somewhat worse situations as yours, they, you know, they, they just jump right into the military because it gives them a sense of responsibility, a sense of structure and order that they never had because drugs, alcohol, addiction, that's a very chaotic way to live. And so it sounds like you found that order, that structure, that discipline, uh, that code of ethics, I know is a huge thing in martial arts, that you found yeah. all these principles within, uh, I'm, I'm doing a disservice by calling it an activity, but uh, a sport, a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you look at... Uh, that if you look at that culture of, let's say, lost young men, you know, that's what they, they, they find it somewhere, right? Uh, some people find it in gangs, right? In inner mm, cities, yep. uh, you know, gangs have a structure, they have a chain of command. You can work your way up. There are people who have success and status and, and are, are examples for the young men. You know, um, you have all the rites of passage and, uh, things like that. Other people find it in the military. Um, you know, a ton of, you know, great, great guys, uh, you know, had very hard lives and the military provided them an outlet for that. Uh, and that's kind of a 
common thing. If you, in fact, it's so common, the old cliche of, well, which one do you want? You want to go to jail or you want to join the military, right? Like one of those two. And so that was how it was back in the day, because one of those two things is going to straighten you up, young man. Um, but people find it, you know, like I said, in, in, in many other things, I found it in martial arts. Um, and martial arts, you know, if you look at if you look at the really great fighters of, of a generation, they generally are the people who are the most desperate, right? So if you go back in America and look at Western, Western boxing, American boxing, um, you know, who, was, who were the best boxers from the 60s and 70s? Well, they were the inner city African-Americans fighting their way out of poverty, right? Uh, like trying to find their, a better life. Mm-hmm. And then it, then it became the Hispanic Americans, right? And, uh, you know, they, they kind of took over the show and, um, you know, just a wave of champions because they were the most desperate at the time and willing to fight their way out of it. No other, I got no other option, right? Uh, a lot of fighters like this, is all I know how to do beat people up and either do it and get paid over here. Or I do it and get paid over there. This pays a lot more money and it's a lot more fun. It's, you know, I could be famous, make my family rich. So those guys who have that talent and have that, that heart, and that, you know, ability. Um, do become, you know, champions. And then, you know, it went on and then, you know, Russia fell apart. And what happened? American boxing was flooded by uh, Russians and, you know, Eastern Bloc, uh, you know, fighters who, again, were, you know, the most desperate uh, at the time and fighting for their families, fighting for their success. So it's a good vehicle for a lot of people um, uh, to, to get into that and, and make something of themselves. That's incredible. Yeah, I, I never thought of it that way. Uh, you were talking about just different generations of desperation. And it seems like, at least in my life personally, the harder things get is when I push the hardest because I don't have any other options other than to fight. My my old mentor used to say, he used to call me, the nickname that he called me was Mattress. And so he, he'd be like, Mattress, when the when you get squeezed, you get better. And I feel like you're talking about just with boxers. I feel like a lot of us, when we get squeezed, that's when we really turn up the heat. That's really when we, you know, kick into gear and really give it our all. And I can, I've done very little boxing, but I can definitely relate to feeling financial constraints, personal constraints, and the more that it encloses in on me, I guess that's kind of like when you corner an animal, right? Like what, what option do they have at that point? That's it. That's it. And they'll endure any pain to regain their, regain their freedom, you know? And, you know, when I was in the early nineties, I was, I was studying with, uh, uh, now grandmaster, uh, Sir Chai Sirius, back then we referred to him as master Chai. And now he's Ajahn Chai, Ajahn Chai Sirius. And um, Thai boxing in Thailand is the national sport, right? It's not basketball. It's not football. It's fighting. And a a kid can become a pro fighter, can start fighting for money at 12 years old. Well, a kid who does has a good Muay Thai season, which is during the monsoon season when nobody's working, right? Um, If a kid has a good Muay Thai season, he can become a champion and he can make more money during that season than his whole family will working in the fields all year. So how much motivation does that kid have? Right. Right. So yeah, now make that, give that kid another four years of training. Right. And so now he's, now he's something, right. Uh, or he's 18, let's make him 18 years old. That kid's been fighting like that his whole life. And uh, for the championship round, that kid's whole family will bet their years earning against the other kids years earning. And in that champion round, somebody walks away rich and somebody walks away and goes back to the field. Right. So, um, and he himself doesn't feel that, right. He, 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 if he wins a fight, he gets a Coca-Cola. That's, that's his prize. Right. Uh, but he still lives in a, in a shack and, you know, with a, with 20 other guys who are getting up every morning before sun, cleaning the place and going for the morning run as the sun's coming up and fighting his, for his life. Right. Um, so, uh, and then you take an American who trains Muay Thai because he likes it, loves the sport, thinks it's a great thing. That guy's not hungry enough. Right. You know, uh, unless he's living the same kind of lifestyle, unless he's got the same skin in the game, um, it's going to be hard for them to to step up. And that's why when you when you when we first 
America first got introduced to Muay Thai, we had a hard time keeping up because those people were hungry. They wanted to, they had skin in the game. It meant something to them. Yeah. 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 I can kind of, uh, the first thing I think of is like world soccer, how the U.S. just, we're, we're getting better, but traditionally other countries, whether it's Europe or South or Central America, like that is their lifestyle. That is their American football, so, right. so to speak, or baseball or what, what have you. And so it, it makes sense that the more you take pride in something, the more something is sacred to you and the hungry you are, whether it's external or internal circumstances, that's going to force you to put in the work, to grind, to endure the pain, the suffering, and and push through victoriously. Right. So yeah, that's incredible. Um, so you said about sixteen to eighteen, you started, you found martial arts. You were working with. Uh, yeah, I was. I was already doing martial arts. Um, before I was 16. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think I probably started martial arts. It's hard to remember. A, a lot of that time is, is fuzzy. Um, like I can remember bits and pieces of it, but, um, I don't know if it's just, it wasn't worth remembering. So I didn't, or I didn't want to remember, but now at this point, I'm like, ah, I can't really remember some of those dates and times and, uh, things like that, you know, but, um, I want to say I started martial arts around 14. I was doing martial arts. I actually started with a mail order martial arts program. And uh, oh, cool. so I was sending $5 a month and I would get, uh, which I had to earn, right? And then uh, I would get this little packet in the mail, this little booklet. And um, and then I would practice whatever it said to do. So I did that even before I was 14. And so, yeah, you started martial arts pretty early in my life. And, um, you know, I, at the time I thought, well, as the oldest son, it's kind of my job. I need to stand up for my mom, stand up for my brother. And I already had a life of violence, right? I was already fighting every day. So um, I felt like I needed to get better at that. And, um, you know, I wanted to be a superhero, right? right. Um, a martial arts legends, um, uh, you know, the people who had done amazing things in their life through martial arts led me, this path, led me to believe that this path would do that. Um, you know, because there's certainly some heroic martial arts figures. Um, so, you know, if you, just in the last couple of generations, much less going way back. Um, so uh, I did believe that this was the path to success for me. Um, and it was, the, it was the only one I was interested in. Education seemed beyond me because I was so far behind. Um, yeah, I remember turning to my friend. I was in, I think, ninth grade. Uh, and I turned to my friend. His name was Joe Gossett. We're still friends today. And uh, I said, uh, Joe, I'm not going to pass this class. It's math. I'm terrible at math. So I'm not going to pass this class. The only way I'm going to be able to pass this class is if you let me cheat. And then this is the last math class after I have to take but to graduate. So just let me cheat my way through this class on you. And then I'll graduate and I'll never have to do it again. And he was nice enough to turn, turn the head a little bit and let me, let me pass that. And I'm sure the teacher uh, was also gracious to let me skate through that class, you know, uh, by the, like I said, by then I was, I was beginning to realize, well, this is kind of important. I, um, uh, I had, uh, a class right after my parents moved, I was in this class and it was, uh, um, English and then lunch and you came back to the same classroom, you English lit or something like that. And, um, uh, the teacher taught both, same teacher taught both classes and she told us, I want you to have a separate notebook for each, each class. Well. You know, I didn't have much money. Uh, and when I say I didn't have much money, I, mean, I didn't have any money. So um, I think I, I, I was working at the weekends. I was saying, man, I was probably living off of 100, 150 bucks a month, you know. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Well, when you don't have an electricity bill. That's true. Yeah. You didn't have a lot <laughs> yeah, of expenses. No bills. Yeah. No expenses. I didn't have a driver's license. I didn't have insurance on that motorcycle. I didn't, and I drove it until it fell apart, literally. Um, you know, so, but I, you know, I was still dirt poor and, um, and of course I was 16. I didn't know how to use my money. I mean, if I went back and did that same thing now, I'd be like, this is great. Right. But <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but back then I, you know, it was just crushing at some points. And so, um, uh, 
uh, anyway, I, I, I told her I couldn't afford two notebooks. And she said, well, you have to. And uh, as an adult, I look at her now and go, okay, well, she got, she had two things and all that stuff. But I bought a notebook that had two, had a divider. And so one side I did one class, second I did the other class. I turned it to her at the end of the semester or whatever. And uh, she failed me. And uh, I was like, hmm, that's rude. I mean, I did the work. Uh, she's like, yeah, but she didn't have two notebooks. I told you to have two notebooks. And I was too proud at the time to really try to explain it to her. And she hated me and I hated her. And that was the only year she was there. Right after that, she left. Uh, but she was there long enough to send me to summer school. And uh, so I so I had to go to summer school because I failed English. And it was that or, or get held back. And I thought, well, I don't want to do that. So uh, summer school was in another town about 25 miles away. Um, and so I found someone in, in Mansfield, which I lived about five miles outside of town. And I found someone in my town that lived in my town, but worked in that town. And so I would get up in the morning and I would ride my little scooter. And I mean, scooter, like not, not a cool scooter, like a bright orange moped kind of scooter with a bright orange, uh, helmet that had sparkles. Oh, nice. Right? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's awesome. And, uh, but I would ride to, to her, their house and I would get a ride with her to her work in that town. So that got me to the town. And so then she would go in to go to work and then I would walk to the school and then I would do the summer camp, do this, this English stuff with all the bad kids. And, um, at least that's what people said they were. Right. And then I would get out of school. I would go back to her work and sit on the sidewalk outside, uh, and do all my homework that I was supposed to do for the summer school. Cause I got out much earlier than she got off work. So I would just sit out there and do that homework and she would get off work. She would bring me back to my town. I would get my moped, go about my day. And that's how I made it through summer school. And uh, I realized, well, that was terrible waste because I had to pay for it myself. Right. And had to get, had to get, you know, I gave her, you know, I don't know, $5 a week to, to t- t- shuttle me. Um, and I thought, man, this was terrible. I'm not doing that again. So from then on, I made nothing but A's in school. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, it I wasn't any more effort in, in, on, on the way it per, I was perceiving it. I was just simply got it for some reason. And suddenly it clicked. And, uh, you know, I just did stuff. I never did, I never had homework. I did whatever they wanted me to do. I did it in class. If they said, uh, I realized, I, I guess I figured how to learn. It, you know, I taught myself how to learn during that summer school. Because I realized that if they say it and I write it down, I'll never have to look at it again. I now have it. And so that was my way. People said it. I wrote it down. Don't need to even look at the notes anymore. I now have that. And uh, so from then on, that's what I did. When people were talking in my class, I took notes. Uh, if I had to read, I read and took notes. I was a good reader, uh, you know, at that point. And um, uh, and yeah, that was that was it. So after that, I made nothing but straight A's. I, I, I ended up in, in my senior year in uh, an advanced class. They wanted to put me in all the advanced classes. And uh, it was funny. This was called junior executive training. It was how to be a businessman. And I lived by myself and they wanted you to wear a suit to school and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, be dressed for success was a thing, be an executive. And I'm like, dude, I am washing my clothes in a kitchen sink, cold water in cold water in the winter and hanging it up by this wood burning stove, try, and no iron, just wrinkles everywhere. You know, I'm sure everybody in school thought I was like pig pen from, from the peanuts. You know, um, I was just trying to figure it out. And then on top of that, trying to get a date every once in a while. It's just a nightmare. Um, but I walked into that classroom and saw a bunch of people. I'm like, hi. hi. I thought, well, I'm going to go introduce myself. So I go introduce myself. And and they're like, yeah, we know. We know who you are. And so they introduced themselves. And I realized, oh, they're like, yeah, we've been going to school with you for 12 years Perfect. now. Yeah. And I was like, where have you been? They're like, we've been in the advanced classes and you've been in the remedial classes. <laughs> so I was like, hmm, that's why I haven't seen you in so long. So, uh, yeah, it was a it was a step up into a new world. That's incredible. <laughs> that is an incredible story. Why well, I, I love how you talked about having that experience with summer school and it essentially forcing you to be like, OK, I don't want to do this again. This is something I don't want to have happen. I don't know the right thing to do, but I know that whatever is going to happen, this, this ain't going to be it. Yeah. And nobody cares. That was one of the things that yeah. I, I realized that nobody cares. Um, nobody cares whether you're with you ate today. Nobody cares. You know, if you were warm last night uh, when you slept, 
uh, or whatever, you know, uh, nobody cares. And, and it was at that point that I began to have resentment towards my external family, right? My aunts, uncles, cousins, like, don't these people realize what's going on? And of course, later on, I realized, yeah, they all knew, but they were all doing their best too, right? They had kids of their own and that's what they, um, but I remember sitting in that house, um, and, uh, I had talked, uh, the renters in my grandparents' house into letting me run an extension cord from that house to my house. So I would have at least one outlet. Now, today I go like, I would get a power strip and like have 18 things, you know, but as a 16 year old kid, I had one, one outlet. Right. Mm -hmm. And so during the day I would plug in a radio and listen to the radio and work out. And, um, cause that's all I did. And then at night I would plug in a light bulb and I remember sitting there and I'm eating this meal <clears throat> and the meal is white bread, a slice of white bread with some syrup poured over it. Um, it doesn't require cooking. It doesn't require, require refrigeration. Um, and in my mind, my childish mind, I was like, well, mountain men survived on flapjacks, right? Yeah. Pancakes. And so this is kind of like a pancake. And, uh, so, uh, I'm sitting there eating this and I look at this lamp that I have on my table. It's an old busted lamp that happened to be somewhere in the house, you know, and it was, uh, a round oval base and it had the stick that comes up where the wires go through it. And then it had the little thing that holds the switch and the bulb. That was it. And I remember looking at that bulb, uh, looking at that light. And I was like, man, that is the bare minimum it takes to make a light, uh, to make a lamp. Mm -hmm. Like you can't take any of that away or it's no longer a lamp. Right. Right. You can't take away that base, you know, or, it's you know, just going to be a string with a lamp. You can't take away the stand. You can't take away the switch. You can't take away the bulb. That's it. That's uh, the bare minimum it takes. And I look at this meal. I'm like, that's the bare minimum it takes to, to make a meal. And then I was thinking to myself, this is the bare minimum it takes to make a life. You know, mm -hmm. there, ha there has to be a better way to do this, you know? And uh, so that was really me realizing that I had to get out of that, you know, that, that this was not going to be my life. This was not going to be who I was. Um, that, that moment was like, okay, whatever it takes, I got to get out of this. I've got to, and my first thing was I got to get out of this house, right? I got to get out of this geography here. I got to change my circle of friends that I'm spending time with. I've got to, I've got to move to a different, different location. That's, that's what happened. I got out of that area. That's incredible. That seems very similar to what you talked about with summer school, except you just came to the realization, like, yeah, this is the bare minimum of living and I don't want this. Yeah. I, I don't learn quickly, but I do learn. Well, we, <laughs> I have to learn the hard way, but, uh, I feel like us being men, it, it takes us hitting our head against the wall quite a few times to finally feel the pain and get like, Oh, maybe I shouldn't hit my head against this wall. Yeah. I, uh, I realized it, it, somewhere around in this time uh, in my life, that because um, I saw it myself and I saw it my friends, that if you don't learn this lesson right now, it'll come back around. Life will bring it back around and you'll be forced to deal with it again, you know, and, and then again and again and again. And your whole life, you'll be dealing with that same problem over and over again, or you'll learn it. Eventually, you'll learn something from that and you'll never have to deal with it again. Um, and I and it was in that time of my life that I was trying to figure that out. I just didn't have a roadmap or you know, that sort of thing, you know? Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. I love how you just said how if you don't solve a problem, it's just going to come back around until until you finally get it. And it might come back in different ways or look a little bit different, might be a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller. But until you learn the lesson and break through that, it's going to keep coming back at you th throughout your whole life. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes it kills people, right? They don't yeah. they just they can't manage this issue. And eventually it, you know, in some form or another, it kills them or it ruins them. Right. And, uh, ruins their life and their outlook on life. They quit trying, you know, all those things that can happen. So, I mean, I look back at my, where I grew up and the people that I grew up in with and around, and I see that all the time, you know, see who they became. And I, I don't really have much to do with them. Uh, so that was it. Like I cut people off. I didn't see family members. I didn't go home for Christmas. Um, you know, I had to get some things straight. 
And uh, to do that, I needed to get out of that location and cut those people off and move on. And, uh, and I, unfortunately, I did it with a lot of resentment at the time. Like I said, that's all gone now. But, uh, but you know, I, I, I had that drive, that hate driving me in a direction. So, yeah. So, so what did you end up doing? Like you said, you moved out of the house, cut ties yeah, for certain so, people. Like what, what did you jump into at that point? I didn't jump into anything. I bounced around and okay. did some things. Uh, I, I got married, um, which, you know, uh, you know, it gave me a great son. Um, and, um, and of course, you know, the marriage failed. Uh, and I, and I, you know, when my son asked me what happened there, I'm like, well, that was all me, man. I was, I was terrible. I have to own all that. Right. And, uh, although, you know, we, we all know that there's both sides to every, everything, but, um, but I would say that, you know, I was a terrible father, terrible, terrible husband. Um, I still had no plans. I, I had jobs. I was, I was making a little bit of money enough to pay bills and that sort of thing, but we were still, you know, destitute. And, um, so I, I tried joining the military, joined the military, did a short stint in that, uh, military was downsizing. So I, uh, dislocated my shoulder in, in uh, school of infantry graduating school of infantry. Um, so they're like, yeah, we don't need any. And I was like, wait, I don't have another plan. They're like, I tried to like, no, I, I just, uh, I'll just, I'll do something else. They're like, yeah, we don't need you. You're going to be a problem. So we're going to kick you out and uh, we'll have to deal with that shoulder forever. So they just downsized the military at the time. And so got rid of me. So I was like, Oh, I don't know what to do. So I bounced around, did every job you can think of, you know, uh, um, I've had, I've had jobs that required college degrees. Of course, I didn't have one, one day of college. Um, you know, every job I got, I was assistant, got moved to assistant manager, some kind of manager position, you know? Uh, but, um, the problem was, is that I hated it and I hated myself doing it. Um, and I knew this wasn't my path and, uh, it was just miserable the whole time. So I bounced around until, um, and, and did, like I said, various jobs. Um, until I really got a job, uh, working for Terry Gibson, uh, as a martial artist in his academy in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that didn't happen until about 1990. So that, you know, few, few years there were very, uh, hard and tough and, you know, all that stuff. But, uh, and I made a lot of mistakes, uh, you know, that cost a lot of people around me and, uh, cost me, um, still trying to figure it out. I was still trying to piece it together. Still really didn't have the, the plan or, the, you know, I had mentors, but you know, they were at that point, they were pretty sporadic. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, nobody really to say, Hey, listen, listen, man, this is, this is how you got to do this. So these are the virtues of a man, right? These are the things you have to do. And, um, this is what it takes to be successful. And this is, you know, all that stuff. The only, th only thing I had going for me at the time was martial arts. I loved it. I was passionate about it. I was excited about it, but nobody I knew made mar did martial arts for a living. I was very rare back then. And uh, so when I met someone like Terry Gibson, I was like, yep, that's the guy. That's the, he has all the rank. He, uh, and, uh, and he studies with all the right people. You know, he's the studies with the masters and grandmasters of every system he studies. Uh, he studies with the current heir to the system. Um, he's got a, a wonderful wife, a great dog, a nice school, um, you know, travels around the world teaching seminars. Like that's the guy. And, uh, that's my new, a new model. And so I met him in 1988 and started taking private lessons with him. I would, uh, save up money and go see him once a month and take a private lesson and train with his classes. And then I would come home and work for a month on that material. And I did that for a couple of years until, um, I, again, I was in between jobs and I was talking to him on the phone and they said, well, why don't you come spend time with me and Kathy? Why don't you come spend a week? And so I went and slept, a, uh, in their guest bedroom for a week and trained with them and just did whatever they were working on. And at the end of the week, he offered me a job. And, uh, that's what, that literally is what, uh, turned my life around. That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible that throughout the road that you had up to that point, people like to think that they see someone like you today and they're like, well, he might've had a hard upbringing, but he knew what he wanted. And I appreciate you talking about how you knew what you didn't want, 
but you still didn't know what you wanted. You didn't know what you didn't know. You didn't know what was possible or, or anything until you, by chance, it, it seems like. Yeah. Fell into this. And I think that's so important that for people to understand that it's okay if we don't have it all together. It's okay if we don't know everything going on, have our whole life planned out. I'm one of those people who had my whole life quote unquote planned out and I was miserable. Right. And I just appreciate you sharing that because you recognized what you wanted, but it took you finding it and going through a lot of shit to get to that point. (laughs) And dragging a lot of people through that shit with me. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. It wasn't pleasant for me or anybody around me. Um, you know, I was still at that point, I was still full of hate and anger, you know? And, um, uh, uh, so that's not a good place to be. And it's not a good place to, for other people to be around. So, um, yeah, it was, it was challenging. You know, I, I, I look back now and, you know, I, I try and go back and when people, who are in my life, which, you know, very rare to run into somebody like that who's, who's in my life at that moment. Uh, I'm like, yep, so, sorry for being such an asshole back then. Uh, <laughs> you know, because, uh, you know, I, like you said, I was, I was completely lost um, trying to figure things out. And uh, I, I suffered greatly for it. And so did everybody around me. Yeah. And that's, that's the chaos that we were talking about, just being in that chaos, being a part of it. And, I know you are definitely a changed man, a changed person from that point. That that version of yourself is long gone. Oh yeah, long gone. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's also great too that, given that situation, understanding who you were, people can change. Oh yeah, I mean, um, thank goodness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, you know, I try and exp- one of the things I talk to people about uh, is people, you know, things are hard and they just they can just have a miracle. And I'm like, well, let me tell you, my friend, uh, you are the miracle, right? You have everything within you. Uh, God already gave you everything that you need to do the things that you want to do in your life that you aspire to do and, and to and to do everything that you need uh, to fill his vision for you. Right. So God already gave you those uh, talents and those capabilities. Now, they may be weak because you haven't practiced them, right? Um, and you may not be aware of what, what all you're capable of, but um, it's all in you. And so, um, yeah, I, uh, I've, I've been focused on that path of changing myself, uh, you know, since then. Well, actually, probably since, you know, 16, right? Realizing that I needed to change. But um but then I realized, oh, there's actually, there's, there are actual pathways to change, right? There's, you can make plans and, uh, and, you know, do step-by-step things and you can get mentors or people who've already done this. I didn't know any of that when I was younger. Right. And so tapping into, you know, what I will just say is, you know, first world level understanding of things, you know, not third, third world, not, not, uh, the kinds of things you get, uh, when you're, you know, extremely poverty, uh, stricken. And, you know, um, the, you know, the only method of management I ever saw was screaming and cussing and maybe a little slapping and beating every once in a while. That was the only ma- method I ever saw of anybody managing anything. It doesn't matter if you was on a crew framing a house or, you know, building fences or working cattle or, uh, working on a car or <laughs> that was the management method, screaming, yelling, cuss and belittle and harass. And so, when I got out of that structure and realized that there are other ways to grow and other mentorships, other management styles, I was like, man, this is, this is much better. And, uh, and it literally changed my life uh, uh, right there at that point when I started working for Terry, because I saw all of those differences. Like these people were different, you know, uh, Terry had been uh, a, a, uh, an attorney for many years uh, grew up in Missouri, good Christian boy, uh, played college football and then put himself through, co- through college there in Tulsa as an attorney, practiced law there until he decided, um, because of a brain tumor, decided that he didn't want to do that line of work anymore, wanted to do is fulfill his dream and teach martial arts. And so, uh, so 
and and his wife was every bit as capable as Terry. So that'd be Kathy. And um, so all of a sudden I got new mentors who were not doing martial arts because they were angry at the world and they wanted to, they wanted to punish the world or beat things up or, you know, take out that violence on, on things. But they did martial arts because they loved it. They did martial arts because they loved the people and uh, they loved the art and they loved the culture. All of a sudden there was a big shift in the way I was personally being managed, um, the way people were speaking to me and the way I shifted the way I spoke to others. Now, it was not easy, uh, you know, for me or Terry and Kathy or the students at Gibson's Martial Arts back in those days, because I was still working through that. I was still trying to prove myself to the world and, you know, all that stuff and uh, that an arrogant young man with all that has to deal with. But now I had new, a new view of the world. And that introduced me to, uh, you know, literally the masters and grandmasters of these martial arts and how they live their life and their path and their journey and their sacrifices. And I was like, oh, this is how this is done, right? This is the path. This is what you're, this is what we're supposed to be. And uh, so that was literally the turning point right there. I, I uh, jokingly would tell Terry and Kathy, you guys saved my life. And uh, they're like, yeah, we gave you a job. That's, uh, that's what. but you know, to them, it was you know, it wasn't that big a deal. We gave you a job and you were, you worked and earned it and all that stuff. But, uh, but that's not true. They, they gave me much more than that. That's incredible. Well, for those listening, we were talking to Harley Tuhan Elmore, him and his wife run Warriors Way Martial Arts Academy, which is a martial arts school in Wichita Falls, Texas. He's also one of the founders of Operation Rescue Children, a nonprofit organization that goes into the darkest places of the world and helps free people from slavery. He's also the owner of Headhunter Blades, and you can learn more about that at headhunterblades.com. And he is also running a training event series called Principled Savage. Well, I'm going to leave us at a cliffhanger here because (laughs) I think this is the perfect time for our audience just to want more. Your story is absolutely incredible. I just love how you articulate everything that had gone on in your life. And I do appreciate you being vulnerable and open about all this. And for those listening, it's just about to get really exciting. So with that said, I'm going to let y'all go. Harley, we'll talk again soon. It's going to be a lot longer for the audience than it is going to be for me. So I'm excited. But for those listening, thank you for listening to this podcast. There is going to be a part two. So stay tuned for more of Harley Tuhan Elmore. Peace out.